0: Hello and welcome, friends, to this week's edition of Truth to Power here on Forward Radio. My name is Justin Maug. I'm your host for the week. And I'm excited, as always on this program, to bring you conversations like you won't hear anywhere else on the dial. And this week, I'm really excited to share with you a conversation that happened just last week on January 5th. It was hosted by Elders Climate Action, which you can learn more about online and join. <laughs> People of all ages are welcome to join at eldersclimateaction.org. And the conversation they hosted last week was between two authors who've been doing some really important writing lately about the climate crisis and how it affects us and how personal it really is. The conversations between Madeline Ostrander, author of the new book At Home on an Unruly Planet, as well as Bill McKibben, better known name, perhaps a longtime fighter in the climate justice movement, but he's got a new book out called The Flag, The Cross, and The Station Wagon. Their conversation was moderated by Valerie Schlored from Yes Magazine. And here it is from January 5th, right here on Truth to Power.
1: Madeline Ostrander is a science journalist and an author of At Home on an Unruly Planet, Finding Refuge on a Changed Earth, and the former senior editor of Yes Magazine. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, NewYorker.com, The Nation, Sierra Magazine, PBS, Nova, Next, Slate, High Country News, and numerous other outlets. She holds a master's degree in environmental science from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And author and environmental activist Bill McKibben is the contributing writer to The New Yorker and founder at 350.org, and now co-founder of Third Act, one of ECA's allies and partners, which organizes people over the age of 60 to work on climate and racial justice. He has written over a dozen books about the environment, including his first, The End of Nature, published in 1989, and his most recent, The Flag, The Cross, and The Station Wagon. A graying America looks back at suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. So please help me welcome Madeline and Bill to tonight's conversation. Welcome both of you. Um, Would you, Madeline, would you like to give sort of a quick, hello an introduction of yourself anything further you want to say
2: i mean i'm just really honored to be on this call and here with all of you and I'm, I'm amazed and heartened that we have so many amazing people here and in attending and um you know i mean i've known bill's work for my whole adult career and probably before then really and i'm just I'm, i you know i, I hugely admire his work. And and I think these both of these organizations are doing really important work in terms of, you know, organizing intergenerationally. And I I just thought that we could have um, a conversation about American communities. I think both of the books we're talking about speak to the nature of community and the kind of country we're trying to build. And I'm excited to have this conversation. Boy, me too.
3: And what fun to get to be with you all. Um, You know, our Competition tonight is the um, ongoing saga in the House of Representatives. I can report to you that I just checked and Kevin McCarthy has managed to lose his 11th vote in a row. They're still counting, but he's already too far behind. So I'm afraid that one's going to continue on into the evening. Uh, We're only going to hold you here for an hour um, because that seems humane. But what a pleasure, especially to get to be with Madeline. Her new book is. As I believe I may have remarked on its cover, marvelous. Um, It really is a terrific, terrific uh, piece of reporting and also a terrific piece of writing, which is important to me. Um, I spend you know, most of my life, most of my time now is a kind of volunteer activist. But really, as you can see from the mess behind me in my office, I'm a writer first and foremost. And um, so what a pleasure to get to join her towards the start of a brilliant career. Um, um, and, and really just to get to say thanks to everybody, uh, especially the folks at ECA. <clears throat> and I'll just add, we're all working hard as the new year dawns uh, and we have a um, we have a sort of 6 month window before the 2024 political campaign really <laughs> begins to uh, take on some some other stuff and we're hard at work taking on the big banks around climate change everybody's joining together uh in this day of action on March 21st 32123 2, 2, the best palindromic date of, uh, in a long time um uh, and, and we'll be inside and outside branches of Chase and City and Wells Fargo and Bank of America all across the country telling them the time has come to stop funding the fossil fuel industry. So there's tons of work, e- e- even though for a little while we have the luxury of not having an election in Prospect. Um, and I'll just add uh, um, many, many thanks to everybody who spent the last year working on uh on things political in this country because um 2022 could have been a lot worse than it was uh and you know there i have this strong sense that democracy lived to fight another day and um, so it's our job to to make sure that that day is spent usefully in all kinds of ways so what a pleasure to get to be with you all
1: And Elders Climate Action is really looking forward to that participating in that day of action and we'll be making sure that all of our members have information about how they can participate. um, As we get closer to that date, let me start with a question with both of you focus on different aspects of American communities both books have a certain local lens and they use that to reflect on bigger questions. So why do you choose community as a starting place for asking those types of questions? And maybe I'll start with Madeline. Um,
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I think there's a few different ways I could answer this, but one thing I've noticed in my climate reporting is that um, I have noticed that the issue of climate change becomes a lot clearer to people to certain people and, and more power, powerful to people when they understand what it will mean for them at home and in places they care about. Um, I think you know everyone's motivated to, to fight for the things that they love. Um, and also a lot of my reporting has focused on environmental justice and um, I think the lessons of the environmental justice and climate justice movements are that you can't really successfully deal with any environmental crisis, like a major pollution problem or where Fossil fuel facility sits or, you know, who has access to things like heat pumps or solar panels without considering how the most vulnerable people are affected, including people of color and low income households and older people. And when you start thinking about an environmental issue that way, you come up against a lot of local questions and a lot of questions about home and about the places people live in and the way we organize our communities and um. I think that that's a really important way to talk about the climate crisis. Um, Jonathan Foley, uh, climate scientist, is always talking about how we need to make climate change a kitchen table issue. People need to be able to understand how it's very relevant to their own lives. So I, I wanted to tell stories from different communities that were confronting dispar- different aspects of the climate crisis so people could imagine or understand how it's it's affecting them in in their own homes and begin to think about how we respond and how we cope.
3: That's, I think that that's just right. And I'll say that, um, I'll just try to add the kind of um, historical perspective here, because in some ways my most recent book is about, and what a lot of my work and thinking about has been, over the last some years is this idea that america took a very wrong turn when it um stopped focusing on communities and started focusing on individuals and you know my um, this last book of mine's kind of focused on the 1970s because i think that's the the decade i was growing up but the sort of hinge decade um when we stopped (laughs) when we (laughs) decided that we weren't going to do america as a group project anymore that the kind of uh social solidarity that had been fostered in the depression and then in the second world war and then even amidst the turbulence of the of the 1960s you know lbj was still at work on the great society and and dr king on the beloved community and 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 somehow that energy flagged And by 1980, in the election of Ronald Reagan, we decided that individuals were actually what mattered, that what we should be thinking about is our own property values, not our community, Uh, uh, that markets would take care of problems. Uh, It was Maggie Thatcher who famously said, there is no such thing as society, there are only individual men and women. And that spell, which is what we've operated under in most of my uh, adult life, is only now I, I think even beginning to to break a little. Um, it, it's been fascinating to watch Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, who I think are sort of the. It's Biden enacting much of Sanders' vision of the world is what our sort of current presidency is, and and together they're taking us back not to Obama and not to Clinton, but back towards LBJ, Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, and it's, you know, especially in its earlier form, the Build Back Better bill, were the first real attempts to use what we might call big government to try and make the lives of people better, Uh, us working together on behalf of the whole. And so that's been powerful and and interesting to watch. And I, I think that where that debate comes out, whether we decide uh we're um um mostly just going to operate in the world as if we were individuals or whether we're going to think about it in um more community-minded terms probably does more than even any of the questions about technology to determine whether or not we make it safely through the very difficult decades ahead
1: thank you both for those thoughtful responses um how about how about let's switch a little bit to racial justice and and its connection in the fight against climate change? Madeline, would you would you mind talking a little bit about racial justice and how it relates to your work in your recent book?
2: Yeah, I, I can I can jump in with that. Um, there's a, a couple. I mean, I, so the book, the way that my book is organized, is around four different communities, and I tell these four stories that have this narrative arc in which. In the first part of the book people confront some particular kind of crisis some threat that is related to the the climate crisis and in the second part of the book people in that community come together and are organizing to look for solutions or ways to ways to confront it one of the community three of the communities that i i write about are are dealing primarily with the the direct impacts of climate change for instance there's a community in alaska where they're dealing with really catastrophic erosion because of permafrost thaw and degradation. And they're having to relocate. Um, but and that is also an environmental justice story, but um in a racial justice story because that's an Alaska native community. But the one I, I kind of wanted to zero in on right now is is the story of Richmond, which is a community that's dealing foremost with the presence of this massive Chevron refinery that's 120 years old and really has been there as long as the city has been there and in the book i try to follow not just the story of the community and the story of there's a a, a particular individual her name is story robinson she's an extraordinary person and I, I follow her story through the book how she you know is is part of a historic black community that has faced tremendous housing discrimination they've faced tremendous environmental racism and over time, it's, you know, it's been the power of that community coming together and, and trying to reimagine and say we want something else here that's enabled that community to organize and find its voice as activists and confront that corporation and begin to imagine that Chevron might not be there one day that the community has some agency over what happens with that corporation. Um, I guess. I mean, more broadly, you know, the IPCC just recognized in the last year that colonialism is a driving force behind the climate crisis. And when you think about the model that we've we've used to develop our energy, it's it's you know putting big polluting facilities in communities that have the least voice to to deal with the impacts and to to um, <laughs> you know to object and richmond is one of those places that's had to deal with that legacy and you know when we deal with the problems of racial justice when we deal with the problems of colonialism when we give those communities a voice i think it also gives those communities a chance to articulate what kind of future they want and that they want a healthy community and um i think that's part of the picture of how we address this crisis
3: yeah You know, and Richmond is such a good example, and I'm so glad that madeline has been writing about it. You know, I I was once arrested outside that Chevron refinery there, and I remember being put in the paddy wagon, and there were six of us arrested in handcuffs in that particular paddy wagon, and we spoke six different native languages. Um, You know, it's one of the most, uh, uh, it's a huge and diverse and interesting Asian community with lots of other uh, uh, groups too, um, living there, uh, in a wonderful community. And it's just completely overshadowed by this hulking refinery, which, you know, has a, has everybody on like text message speed dial. So when they emit dangerous stuff, they can tell people to go close their windows. I mean, it's grim and nobody would put up with it in a, uh, you know, upper-class, uh, white community in America. It wouldn't exist. Um, um, It wouldn't be allowed. Um, That's true in this country and it's true across this planet. Everybody knows that the iron law of climate change is those who did the least to cause it get hurt first and hardest you know um, pakistan still underwater after last fall's flooding pakistan's put way less than one percent of all the carbon into the atmosphere the four percent of us who live in this country have put about 25 percent of the carbon up there and those of us you know people who have money are uh, 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 are far more responsible for What's happening? Um, We've discovered in the course of this past year the kind of remarkable numbers around it. Uh, If you have $125,000 in the banking system in America, in the big banks like Chase and Citi and Wells and Bank of America, uh, just $125,000, that money being lent out for pipelines and things creates more carbon every year than all the cooking, flying, heating, cooling, driving that the average American family does. That's the biggest source of carbon in the world is 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 our financial system, and so there's extraordinary opportunities for doing some I don't know what you'd call it even some justice making as we go forward here. One of the best things about the Inflation Reduction Act that finally got passed this year, the first serious climate legislation the Congress has ever passed, is that it makes a a effort uh, to direct a lot of that money at communities that are the most vulnerable and have been most oppressed. Now, my guess is given the kind of political laws of gravity, it's gonna take a lot of work to make sure that that money actually ends up in those communities instead of defaulting into rich places like it normally does. But I hope that, and we're doing our best to make sure that that work happens. Um, because we've got some opportunities now. To there's some money out there that could begin to change things and change them in in useful ways. And you know, as long as we're on the subject of community, bookstores are a remarkable reminder uh, of what makes communities work. Um, you know, um, um, the bookstores that survived first Barnes and Noble and then Amazon, the onslaught of all of that, have become had to become truly valuable hubs in their communities and places of organizing and places of enrichment and places of gathering. And that's really that's that's the kind of work that I think we're all called to in one place after another. But bookstores are an easy one to, uh, uh, you know, uh, communities. I know nobody on this call would ever do this, but communities that, that take their bookstores for granted no longer have them. So friends don't let friends buy books at Amazon, you know.
1: Let's talk a little bit about, about communities. And, and how about, um, how do communities need to be rethought and redesigned to respond to the climate crisis? What are some of the the aspects that are overlooked here that we need to be talking about?
3: Well, some of them are super exciting. I'll jump in for a minute and just say, the news yesterday was that the city of Paris under mayor uh, uh, and Hidalgo, who's a great leader, has decided that they're going to cut the amount of parking in the city of Paris in half in the next two years. They've already closed off huge parts of the city to cars, but, you know, if you look around American cities, uh, uh, an extraordinary percentage of the real estate's given over to the storage of automobiles, which is Insane. Uh, um, um, we don't need it anymore. We don't need it because we can do public transportation. Uh, we don't need it because we have uh city bike and because we have uh uh scooters, though I'm, I'm not gonna get on one. Um and uh, uh we have lots and lots of ways uh, uh to allow places to become much, much nicer to live in forget the carbon for a minute and just concentrate on what a pleasure it is uh to well to go to paris at the moment or to be in copenhagen or to be in any place that's thought for 10 minutes about how to try and make itself something other than a place that people rush through in automobiles
2: um i guess i'll tag onto that by telling a a story um I, I, I seem to be thinking a lot about Richmond this evening, um, as <laughs> it's the story that's that's captivating my attention the most, but um, um, in any case, one of the beautiful things I found in reporting on and, and writing about Richmond is that there's an incredible act of reimagining happening, or many acts of reimagining, so Richmond is you know like so many cities around the country kind of a post-industrial city a place where there was a lot of manufacturing a lot of wartime industry and a lot of that went away and then they were left with a lot of abandoned land and a lot of vacant spaces and a lot of toxic legacy and part of what people like Dory robinson and other activists in the community have been doing is to reclaim that land and to Bring in parks and to bring the community back together, and I think it's in a lot of ways that act of reimagining and making the city more beautiful and more vital, and bringing people together in public spaces, that's allowed people to think we could be something other than a fossil fuel town. And and so I think you know there's a lot of a lot of power in, in reimagining and and rethinking what a health community can look like. Um, and, in, you know, in Richmond's case, it's it's also allowed them to consider things like, I mean, you know, they've, they've brought in green jobs training programs, they've um, cleaned up sort of wasted parcels of land and been able to clean them up to the degree that they could grow farms on them. And they have a thriving um, urban farming economy in some parts of the area going on. So it's 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 really amazing what can happen when we allow ourselves to think that you know we could depend on clean economies (laughs) instead of dirty ones
4: i'll just say hello now everyone i'm so sorry i'm joining you late i had internet problems but i'm very happy to be with you now hi valerie hi very good to see you valerie thank you so much bill as long as there's a little pause i'll just say that i really loved both books and they're they're they complement each other beautifully. And they're both, um, I love the way that you both make the necessity of climate action concrete. I think that's very appealing because everything is, there are all these personal stories that, that put everything in context. And so I guess one thing I was going to ask you, I see you've been talking about communities is, um, I think, Bill, we know why you chose Lexington, but um, Madeline, why did you choose the communities you chose to uh, profile?
2: Yeah, um, I, I came. I mean, some of it is the sort of opportunistic thing that happens when you're a freelance journalist and people send you to particular places. But um, I guess I would say um, I've, I've. I mean, I started off saying this. I, my reporting has i've done a lot of reporting on environmental justice and to some degree this book started with that reporting i I went to the bay area i was i was looking for particular kinds of stories for an issue of yes magazine um and i used to both work together at yes magazine um and that issue was on resilience and as i was talking with communities there and and organizers and um, environmental justice groups They just had such a palpable, tangible way, this was 10 years ago, of of talking about how the climate crisis would affect them. What does it mean for particular policies in our communities? What will happen with the vulnerable people that we work with? What will this look like? How will it play out in our neighborhoods? How can we make ourselves ready? And they were asking these very concrete questions, and it felt very refreshing to me because I felt like it was always a challenge as a journalist to write about the climate crisis in a way that made it tangible for people and and made it a sort of bread and butter kitchen table issue. Um, So I chose Richmond because I I was just fascinated by the way that they confronted the climate crisis and the way that they were reimagining what was possible and the kinds of political organizing that were happening in this tiny little community that's struggled economically for so long. Um, And then the other communities, um, I was drawn to for different reasons. Newtok, Alaska, um, as I mentioned before, is relocating across this river because they have been dealing with catastrophic erosion on one side of the river. And it's an Alaska Native community. And the community has, you know, I mean, they've struggled and had stress the way that normal people would if they were organizing a huge project like this and yet they've also been able to come together really beautifully and try to you know get the entire community to the other side and continue to to live in that region and and rethink how they design and build that community they've um they've worked with um, an organization that's built these incredible hyper-efficient houses that they have on on this new site that they're going to live in and they're a model for for communities across the country that have to relocate. Um, And then the other two, um, St. Augustine, Florida um, is a community that's one of the most historic places in the United States. And so when I was thinking about home and how do we confront the climate crisis at home, just the, the kinds of stories and meanings and histories that we associate with home, I felt like one could explore there. And the fourth one, um, Okanagan County is is close to my home. I live in Seattle and it's just over the mountains. And their story is kind of intertwined with my own story at home um, in the sense that their smoke actually drifts into Seattle and clogs our skies when they have wildfires. But there's also just some really impressive leaders there who've um, done a lot of work on disaster recovery and how communities recover from wildfires and also how we restore forests in order to be better ready for wildfires so those were the four and then they all follow this narrative arc of like facing a a big new risk and then trying to cope with or find solutions in ways that i i found really eye-opening and inspiring
4: and there's an interesting connection um between saint augustine florida and richmond california isn't there
2: yeah yeah so um they were both they're both connected with standard oil chevron was standard oil before it was chevron and um saint augustine was built by henry flagler who was the co-founder of standard oil um so one of the oil moguls who of. Um, I mean, Henry Flagler is considered in a lot of ways the the father of modern Florida um, in the sense that he used his money to build railroads and all of this real estate development. And I contrast the two because St. Augustine is a community of such privilege and what and I mean, you know, not. Altogether, like any community, there's diversity there in terms of privilege and income, but St. Augustine is sort of like the dream of, of what can be realized with all of that wealth and Richmond has had to live with all of the negative, difficult, ugly consequences of how we've built, how we built our fossil fuel infrastructure, how we've built our country and our communities.
4: Absolutely, and there's a lot of, um, there's actually narrative drama in the richmond california story because uh well give a little of what's almost a plot away in that as doria robinson and her urban tilth um colleagues make progress every time they make progress it seems like there's uh, a refinery fire yeah it's almost like they can't, can't catch a break uh but they That's
2: true, but also the, particularly the 2012 Refinery Fire, which was the largest one to date, um, was very galvanizing. People had built beautiful things in that community. And so when there was a fire that they felt that um, endangered all of that, they were angry. They were really enraged. And I think that moral outrage, especially on a shared community level, is an important emotion. I mean, I think I think Bill can probably reflect on this as well. I mean, there's a lot of moral outrage that drives the the climate movement, that drives the kind of, and I think that's important. I think that's actually a healthy way to channel anger.
4: As someone has just, as a, an audience member has just said in the chat, um, Doria just got elected to Richmond City Council. She in, did.
2: Uh, she did, and. Um, they have so there's a Richmond Progressive Alliance that is in a lot of ways organized around its opposition to fossil fuels and organized around um creating more healthy community and social justice. And they have a majority on the city council this year. And so they're hoping to have kind of a model year where they pass a lot of local legislation that um you know can promote things like clean cars and, you know, and and green transportation and green jobs and and come up with policies that maybe other cities can also adopt or think about
3: and by the way getting elected to the city council in richmond's no easy feat because chevron pours in i mean they've spent There's more money per vote spent on city council races in richmond california than any place else in the world probably um the amount of oil money that and people have time and time again stood up to it and and good on them the you know the um we're at an interesting point now where the climate movement is moving, uh, as Madeline points out, in Richmond and many, many other places from this kind of moment of there are sort of decades of exhortation to a period of execution now. Um, there is money on the table, 400 $500, 600000000000 billion in the Inflation Reduction Act, depending on how it plays out. Um, and that's uh, uh, enough money to start allowing communities uh, to start thinking in whole different ways than they have in the past. Uh, And it's not enough money to do all that needs to be done. I mean, there's 140 million homes in America. That's an insane number of furnaces, stoves, uh, uh, cars that need to be changed into something else and quickly. But it may be enough to get it jump-started if we really you know, if people really pitch in. But it's going to have to be done on a community by community basis, not a house by house basis. Too expensive to do it that way. You need to have whole communities buying in so that we can make this happen quickly and cheaply. And that's the uh, the work of the years ahead. And so it's really good that there are some experienced people in some places who are leading the way. And we can look around the country and see a lot of that leadership is coming out of parts of California. Uh, But the thing that worries me is that it needs pretty quickly to get deep into the kind of suburban heartland of America. That's where most of America lives, which means that's where most of our carbon emissions come from. Um, it's the hardest landscape in the world in certain ways to change it's if you set up a physical landscape to burn as much fossil fuel as possible it would look a lot like the american suburban landscape sprawling disconnected large homes uh no easy way to do public transportation on and on and on that's where the really interesting challenges are i think in the next little while um and The good news is that there's lots of enthusiasm for some of these changes and more all the time. I don't know whether you guys saw the study that came out yesterday that said that uh, something like a fifth of all the asthma in America was caused by people breathing, kids breathing, uh, 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 kids raised in homes with gas stoves, breathing the volatile chemicals that come off when you burn gas in your home um well a lot of you know as word like that as we spread word about things like that there are tens of millions of parents and grandparents who are going to be saying you know what i want a induction stovetop and and we need to be able to make it easy for them to do that and get them and understand how it goes and and so on so A fascinating, fascinating period coming up, different in certain ways from what we've been doing for the last few decades, from demonstration to deployment. That's the.
4: that, uh, That leads me to a question in the chat from Robin Weller, who says, I live in a place where many of the communities are quite conservative and don't like hearing about the crisis. Yet these communities could benefit so much from some of the IRA grants. How can I influence them into believing that we need to take strong action? And I would just say um, one thing about your book, Bill, that I thought uh, could really help with changing that mindset is your discussion of the suburb as a wealth creator and uh, how that it's really influenced an entire mindset um, where I think A lot of middle class white America has been very, um, very kind of hooked on that wealth creation and didn't want any challenges to it. And I found your discussion of that so um, unique and compelling. It seemed to me that the book would be a good tool for changing some thinking.
3: Well, I mean, it's a very interesting, we were talking about racial justice before. And one of the reasons for the, maybe the biggest reason at this point for the enormous and growing racial wealth gap in this country is the fact that large numbers of people didn't, weren't able to get on board the suburban property escalator at the beginning and ride it up. Um, This was the greatest burst of prosperity, not in American history, but in the history of the world. Uh, what happened in America from the end of the Second World War to, you know, sometime in the 1980s or 1990s. uh, The just explosion of the suburbs and their property values. And I tell the story in the book of the house where I grew up in the suburb outside Boston, Lexington, um, that my parents bought for $30,000 in 1970 and that sold last year for the last time it sold for a million dollars. So in real terms from about $200,000 to about a million dollars in our money. Um, That $800,000 gain was just being in the right place at the right time. And lots of people had no way to be in the right place at the right time in 1970. And so they missed out. Um, We owe huge debt. We owe huge other debts i mean these same suburbs put more carbon into the atmosphere than any other thing in the world the only thing that comes close but not that close was the industrialization of china and and so those debts are enormous the good news is that we have the money to pay them uh, we remain especially in the kind of affluent suburbs of america an extraordinarily wealthy place and so part of our job is, I think, to think very much in those terms. On the other hand, that, you know, is a hard political case to make. Uh, Reparations are, by their nature, going to be a hard sell. So while we're doing it, we also have, at the moment, the extraordinary possibility of uh, the kind of excitement that comes with the um, Technologies that are around us that are really interesting. I mean, the cheapest way to generate power on planet Earth now is to point a sheet of glass at the sun. And people get that. Uh, solar energy is incredibly popular with Republicans, independents, and Democrats. And they may be for different reasons. You know, I think sometimes that conservatives like the idea that solar panels on their roof make their house a fortress with which they're you know now entirely uh you know independent and liberals you know like the idea that we're all connected in this web by the groovy power of the sun and you know whatever but we can you know those are differences we can work with um and 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 so there's room for many kinds of appeals right now we just better be making them fast because the the scariest part of the climate crisis is, it's a time test. So any answer that you give that takes longer than physics is allowing, isn't an answer. And and that makes things far more difficult because as the House of Representatives is busy proving at the moment, our political system is not geared for speedy and nimble reaction to crises around us. That's why we have to keep building movements over and over and over again.
2: As Bill pointed out, people support things like solar energy for all kinds of reasons that are economic, and they don't necessarily have to be about the climate crisis. But the the person's question was also about talking with conservatives. And one insight I've had from um, talking with people like Lara Hansen and EcoAdapt, and like the folks at the Center for New Democratic Processes, which uh, deals with rural communities and tries to have conversations with them about climate, is is again, that when you have a, a discussion about about it on a very local scale, about things that people can see, about ways it's impacting their lives, and about how it's impacting things that they care about, it it can really profoundly shift the conversation, and it can also build support for for things like solar and other mitigation strategies and, and, you know, other kinds of efforts, because people suddenly realize, oh, I understand how this is connected to my life and my own personal space and my the you know immediate economy around me and um it can get past some divisiveness in places where that is an issue.
4: I certainly felt reading your book, Madeline, that we were invited into the experience of people who are on the front lines. Um and that that does help make it more real. Um, and you know, yeah evokes imagination and empathy. Um, oh individualism patrick costello reading about the organized resistance to renewable power infrastructure in small towns all over the country makes me very very worried our culture is so infected by radical individualism extreme capitalist ideas of each against all makes it extremely hard for people to make sacrifices for the good of all oh out of one set of our mouths they will assert great concern about climate but being able to see a wind mill from their backyard is just too much well what do you think about that i mean i think that both books also evoke that this is taking action actually facing up to reality and and taking action is a more rewarding way to live ultimately i mean i don't maybe it's not necessarily a sacrifice to see a windmill from your backyard
3: it does strike me that we might want a new um, aesthetic in some ways for the uh, world in which we live. I mean, I'm very grateful that people, uh, um, that people developed a uh, appreciation of um, of the beauty of the world around us. You know, Gloria and I were talking just before we came on about, uh, she'd been over to uh, the LBJ, um, Uh, museum and and we were talking about the way that Lady Bird Johnson in the 1960s brought us the Highway Beautification Act and this sort of beginnings of a kind of appreciation of scenery in America. Uh, And I'm all for it. I love the beautiful world around me. It's why I live where I live. But um, I understand that the threat to that beauty lies more than anything at the moment in the radical dysfunction of the climate system now underway and so i have time and again campaigned for windmills on the ridges near me and solar farms in the valley and so on and so forth Um, and i've come to think of i mean i when i look at the big wind turbines they strike me as extraordinarily beautiful in certain ways Uh, the breeze made visible and they strike me as the act of responsibility made concrete, um, people beginning to take some responsibility for the things that they use near where they are, because the alternative is to rely on um, ripping off the top of somebody else's mountain in West Virginia or flooding somebody's uh, uh, land in Pakistan or wherever it is. Um, we have the ability to generate uh, energy close to home. and. It's not only i think can be beautiful in physical terms it's also beautiful in the way that it begins to bring uh, uh control over some resources closer to home um you know i'm reminded over and over again this year by my great colleagues lana Romanko in the ukraine that fossil fuel uh, fuels autocracy too uh that's why vladimir putin has enough money to firing off waves of missiles at uh, 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 the cities of Ukraine, uh, uh, not even fighting a war, just fighting a kind of constant um, attack on civilians. And and the world where the Vladimir Putins and the kings of Saudi Arabia and the Koch brothers and things no longer have us in a hammerlock uh, strikes me as a, a world that's good in other ways too so thinking about how to empower local communities is an awfully important part of this work and really you know Madeline does it wonderfully in her book and she also did it wonderfully for years at Yes Magazine really chronicling so much of of this story as it plays out uh around the country um um, it's um it's got to be the story of our time i mean uh uh uh, if it isn't then our time's going to be the last time (laughs) Uh.
4: thanks for that bill i
2: think i think people often use the phrase rugged individualism and i started to think of it as toxic individualism um (laughs) it's it's really kind of a almost like a pollution in our our public discourse and it's also a a strange kind of mythology because I, i think it comes from people sort of having some kind of amnesia or or some complete lack of awareness of all of the systems and infrastructure that connect us and and, you know this this myth that they're not depending on those things i do think that some of the ways that climate change is impacting us now is is laying those bare um you know when when you uh go through something like a wildfire or a hurricane it becomes abundantly clear how much people are dependent on each other how much they're dependent on systems of emergency response um there's a ton of research about how much more resilient people are when they in the face of that kind of crisis and in general when they know their neighbors and so just the simple act of talking to people down the street and you know getting to know people around us is is a kind of act of resilience and i guess i I mean, I don't know exactly how we combat toxic individualism, but I I hope that there's ways we can tell stories about how people are connected to each other and how they're responding to crisis. People want one more book to
3: read to to cheer them (laughs) up and make them think exactly along the lines that Madeline was just describing. Um, uh, Rebecca Solnit's Paradise Built in Hell uh is a tremendous account of how people in the face of natural disasters naturally tend towards community and solidarity not towards looting and individualism and Rebecca you know who's maybe the great essayist at work in the language today um is she's with all of us she's a uh, you know uh uh one of the advisors at third act so lots and lots of us old people now really consciously moving into action as old people trying to figure out how to back up the youth that are doing what needs doing um and having a lot of fun doing it uh uh this stuff is spreading fast and powerfully and it's really exciting i think for all of us to get to be a part of it um um, um, it it could be powerfully decisive uh um one of the most interesting things that happened in the last election was especially in key races, older voters didn't vote the way that they were anticipated to. And um, and if we can keep that kind of thing happening, we have some chance of working our way out of the mess that we've wandered into. So um, everybody keep the, you know, uh, we need some non-fossil fuel metaphors here. Uh, Uh, not keep shoveling coal, uh, keep, um, you know, not push the pedal to the metal, um, um, but we do need to keep working really hard together because things are starting to build in beautiful, beautiful ways. I have a question for Madeline. What are you working on now?
2: That's a good question. (laughs) Um, I'm sort of trying to figure out what comes next. I mean, I think I would would like to keep telling more of these kinds of stories about what things things that are happening organizing that's happening at the community level in response to the climate crisis um there are a few other projects that i'm i've been looking into um i think richmond has been also asking some really interesting questions that i i have been thinking looking into in other communities like you know philadelphia has gone through um so uh richmond has been asking questions about what will it mean when the chevron refinery finally retires um and there's other organizations like uh sightline institute that have been asking those kinds of questions um and there's you know there's other i think we have a lot of questions to ask about what do we do with all this huge old fossil fuel infrastructure and and how do we um not catastrophically shut it down but shut it down in a deliberate um, way that makes it possible for communities to clean up and recover.
4: Here's one from- Fantastic,
2: by the
3: way.
4: Get to work. (laughs) Here's a comment from Michael Allen. Bar Harbor, Maine is a great example of a community bringing young and old together to get the town council to declare a climate emergency create a climate task force and adopt a climate action plan. My small coastal town of Florence, Oregon can learn a lot from the example of Bar Harbor. How can we get the stories of successful community climate actions to towns like Florence? I think Michael already knows you're you're publicizing it, Michael.
3: The, one of the good things that's going on right now is this explosion in good reporting about the climate crisis and all its many facets and i feel this particularly strongly because i was around for decades when it wasn't true i mean for far too long for 10 or 15 years there was a uh, 70 percent chance that if there was a big story in some american magazine about the climate crisis it was written by me and that was a stupid I mean it was not healthy in any way including for me um and i nobody who appreciates more the blossoming of great reporting on this stuff and it's coming i mean you know watching the new york times or the washington post is astonishing they have great reporting almost every day on solutions, on remarkable possibilities. But there's also lots, even in a world of degraded local media, where we haven't done a good job of protecting local media. uh, There's lots of other great, there's a lot of great podcasting, uh, a, a, a lot of storytelling happening. The challenge now, I think, is to figure out how to make sure that things aren't pilot projects, uh, small one-off experiments. It's how to do things that scale quickly and easily. Uh, so the people at places like Rewiring America are figuring out how to do big citywide campaigns that very, very quickly bring civic leaders and civic institutions together to proselytize and uh, uh, make make smooth the path as people want to change their homes and businesses. Um, um, because we can't wait for sort of the, you know, the, the market to slowly, slowly work this out. Physics isn't giving us that much time. We have to be catalyzing this reaction. We have to be forcing this spring. And, and so that's the challenge now, whether we can figure out how to do that or not. And storytelling is a key way to make that happen because stories are potent and they get inside people's brains and help them see possibility. What a pleasure this evening has been! I've really enjoyed it immensely. Um, um, to get to be with all of you, and really, do, as I said at the beginning and the outset, yeah. to get to oh, salute okay. Madeline at the um, uh, 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 towards the start of a tremendous career. Um, um, her book really is something, and um, and our work together all really is something. Uh, uh, this year can and should be an exciting time of really building power uh, together and some of us doing it consciously as older people. So uh, see you all on 32123, 2, 2, uh, you know, on the picket line, in the jail, uh, wherever it is you're going to be that day. Um, we will see you there and, and, and in the meantime, just many, many thanks to all.
4: I just want to add my thanks uh, on behalf of Elders Climate Action, the Virginia chapter, and um, all of those who are working for together for to push all of these issues. Madeline and Bill and Valerie, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, There was a question about Elders Climate Action, and just to let you know, at EldersClimateAction.org, you can find out all the information you need. We are a very strong group uh, trying to develop chapters in every state um of people 55 plus 60 plus whatever you consider moving into your elder years we want to leave a legacy that is different than what we're leaving now so Amen. On that note, good night Amen.
0: everybody good night thank all.
2: you so much to everyone it's just a so wonderful you. conversation
0: thank you good night good night and with that the conversation was concluded back on january 5th between authors Madeline Ostrander and Bill McKibben. And that, closing it out, was my own mother, Gloria Mogg from Arlington, Virginia, and Elders Climate Action's Virginia chapter was hosted that conversation on January 5th. Again, you can learn more about Elders Climate Action and get involved at eldersclimateaction.org. That's all the time we have for today here on Truth to Power. Look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time with another great conversation that you won't hear anywhere else on your radio dial right here on Forward Radio.